O most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the truths of your word uh, given, written to us, uh, revealed first to the writers of the Old and New Testament that you ordained to be writers, and then now able to be recorded uh, through the technologies over the centuries that we could read it all in a book, no longer in a scroll, hidden in some pigeonhole-like place where only certain people could gain access. You are so gracious. You have given us complete access to your written, your revealed word. Thus we ask you uh, to allow the, the work of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, the person to, uh, of the Spirit to illuminate the truths for us this day, that we might apply them to our lives and thus bring more glory to your, your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, this is the last doctrine we'll take on. So this week we'll take on the doctrine, and next week, uh, Mark, uh, will be taking on the doctrine of eternity in everyday life. So we're doing, dealing with uh, primarily the doctrine of eternity. Interesting enough, I'd never heard of the doctrine of eternity, meaning that most of you would go, What? My pastor hasn't heard? Well, no. What I'm getting at is there's no church writings on, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine is born out in other areas of doctrine. But so what he has done is he, has, he compiled a bunch of that information as well as the, uh, uh, some of his own narration of it, his own uh, synthesis of it, and came up with the doctrine of eternity. So if you are challenged to find that when you do your Google search, there's your reason why. The church has never labeled it exactly as such. Um, however, um, we do have that understanding. And doctrine just simply means teachings. And we might say biblical teachings for our purposes. Um, so don't get hung up by the fact that the doctrine of the, church, of the eternity was never officially written on by the church per se. Um, with that, um, we're going to use a lot of the format we did... I'm not sure if we did it last week or the week before, um, with, he jumps into the Westminster Confession of Faith, so I've jumped into the uh, Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, and you can see that halfway during the, the, the break at the halfway mark of the first page, and then there's just a little bit on the back. We're going to do a lot of investigating the scriptures, because I want you to make, I want to make sure that everybody really grasps um, the doctrine uh, itself, the, the teachings that are behind, the, the scripture behind understanding what eternity looks like. So with that, uh, <clears throat> Mark, would you mind, do you have the mic? Yeah, I think I left it for you. Um, let's go ahead and someone read the first, and then if you want to read the second as well, or somebody read the second paragraph, um, then I'm going to take over start of the third little sentence, or what might look like a paragraph there um, on that front page. Understanding the doctrine of eternity. You are about to read something that will seem extreme, but it is essential and true. Without the doctrine of eternity, there would be no such thing as the gospel of Jesus Christ, let alone any such thing as gospel hope. If there is no future where justice is meted out and where drama of sin and death is finally resolved, then none of the doctrines that we have considered are worth our attention. By the way, that was shocking to me. I didn't agree. I, I had a problem with that. I'm listening to that going, do I think that's a biblically correct statement? And ultimately, it, it is. It's just written in such a format that causes you to go, huh. Okay, keep going. Everyone cries out for eternity. They just don't know it. The little boy 
who is choking back his tears because he has been bullied, is crying out for eternity. The old man who is dealing with the pain, weakness, and loneliness of old age is crying out for eternity. The pastor who has ministered long with little fruit is crying out for eternity. The lonely teenager who just wants to be understood and accepted is crying out for eternity. The worker who has been uh, reamed out by his boss once again for reasons he doesn't understand is crying out for eternity. The hungry, homeless man is crying out for eternity. So his point there is not that they are crying out for the correct understanding or the doctrine of eternity. They're crying out to, there's got to be something more, something better, something lasting, something not broken. And we're at something completely different than where I am. This can't be the design for my life, whether they recognize initially a God who is over, sovereignly over their lives, or they just think that their lives is a compilation of random events. Either way, they still realize there's got to be more to this life. And thus, he's pointing out, in those cries, they're crying out for eternity and what eternity has to offer. So look at the, the next uh, point down, or the next uh, line down from that second paragraph, and let me read. The doctrine of eternity deals with man's future eternal state, that we're specifying exactly what eternity and that doctrine uh, is narrowed down to. For the truly broken, hope in something far better than their current state is everything. But it is only the truth of the gospel that makes that better eternal state possible. That's interesting because if you think about evangelism, if you can see and observe brokenness, then maybe the doctrine of eternity is the door you walk through in sharing the gospel. Because they know brokenness, and in their hearts, they know there's got to be something better than this. And then there's your entry into. And so you could simply ask the person, hey, how'd you get there? And do you see a day where it's going to get better? Do you, if you don't see it because it's too dark and too dim, do you long for a day? And what would that day look like? They share that day. You can help them realize, correct that, whatever they say, you can correct that theologically. And now let me tell you how you get to that day. And boom, you see how you just walk through that door of evangelism? So don't hear evangelism as a formula Whatever you got going, I got my formula I'm going to give you. You've got to make it to the, so the ears of the person can hear. They want to hear the, the answer, the remedy to their problem, which is the gospel. Okay, so the question is, first one, what is, and this is a pretty straightforward question. Pastor Pete has been teaching this in the, in the book of Mark. He started off and he taught a little bit about this, reminded us when we got to Acts. What is the event that separates the last days experienced by Christians and the already but not yet times that we currently live in and the fullness of eternal life with Christ on the new earth? So what is that event that, that has to happen before um, the, the new earth is ushered in? And uh, if you want to raise your hand or let Mark know, we can get a mic to you. Anybody want to take a shot at that? Looks like Wayne's got it, Gary's got it, a bunch of people are. It's the, it's the first hand up in the air of the morning. It's one of these hands. Yeah. <laughs> by, within, 15, yeah, within 15 minutes, it's this, and it's like, hey, give me the mic over here. Yeah, exactly. 
Good, Wayne. What is the event? I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Uh, it's the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Uh, amen. Amen. And, and we're going to, it leads into the next question. How is this a continuation of the theme? I'm asking you to get big. We're going biblical theology. We're thinking the arc of the plan of salvation over all of that, which is the time that uh, we, cre- we have lived, God has created mankind, let's put it that way. So how is this a continuation of the theme, salvation through judgment? In other words, upon the second coming of Christ, God saves us from the blank, 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 and ushers in our eternal state. So God saves us from, and the last word is sin in that three-part phrase. What is that word? What is that phrase? The what? It could be penalty. Absolutely. I, I, I would agree with that. That would be an accurate one. And we also have, he saves us from the presence of sin. So he saved us from the penalty of sin before, and we'll see that fully realized in, in his second coming. We'll see it, the fruition of that, because we'll see the separation of the, uh, the wheat from the tares. But God saves us from the presence of sin. I want you to be thinking of that. Penalty was uh, what he did on the cross. No longer are we held, we are stuck in that penalty where we are. It is the curse that we live under. We now have the ability to be saved and be reconciled back to the Father. And that's, that's been a little bit wooden because that has always played out um, in, since the, uh, the uh, Genesis 3.16 declaration that God made about bringing one that would bring that about, but we just see the fulfillment of that of Jesus on the cross. I want you to see this theme, salvation through judgment. I think the best place to start is, is the first place we actually see it in mass is the Exodus. How was an Exodus, how was the Exodus event a, an event of salvation through judgment? So who got saved and who got judged? Yeah, in other words, What's that? Israel and Egypt. Okay, very good. So the Israelites got saved and eat, uh, through Egypt's judgment. So we see that. And then ultimately we move forward, and there's other events that take that into account. Ultimately what happens is mankind gets saved through mankind's judgment on the shoulders of of the one who never sinned. That's why Satan couldn't figure it out. It was so 180, or he would never have allowed Christ to die on the cross because he would have figured out that he's got the power as the Son of God to be raised by God. You see the participation in there. Some scriptures say God was raised. Some people, or excuse me, that God the Father raised them. Some scriptures say Christ raised, he, he raised himself, so to speak. Um, the, the picture is that God's power dwelled in Jesus, and so did God's favor from the Father. Even if Satan knew the plan, it is not for him to allow or not allow the crucifixion of the Christ. God's plan was going to come to fruition either way. Sure. I, Besides, would, I, I would say that comes, uh, comes alongside the truth that in 1 Corinthians, God says that um, the mysteries were there for the purpose of bringing judgment on Satan himself, the deceiver, is deceived into thinking what he is doing is right, and he actually becomes a character in the plot of Christ. Of Christ. So I, Comple- see, I see completely both. agree with you. Completely agree with you. Uh, hearing 
the phrase. It just, it's more of a general uh, hearing the phrase. Satan would not have allowed Christ to have you know, the sure. victory. Maybe allowed is too strong. <laughs> he would not have wanted. Okay. So I see what you're saying. So now that's good. So I want you to hear that. What happens now as you think about this step into eternity? What happens at Jesus' second coming where we see the final play, uh, playing out of the theme salvation through judgment? Who is getting saved from the presence of sin by way of somebody being judged? Anybody want to take that on? I think Rob Boy's looking like he's got it figured out. I got, a, I got a nod very quickly there. So I thought, okay, he can do that. So salvation through judgment is played out one final time on Christ's return. Rob Boy, how would you say that's played out? Well, the, the earth has been suffering and groaning, and it'll be cleansed. There'll be a judgment. Jesus says that he'll make all things new, which is different than making all new things. So it'll be... Uh, cleansed. Um, the presence of sin will be removed through judgment, through those who uh, are not believers will be removed and cast into hell, English word. And uh, through that, you will create the circumstance where believers, the meek, shall inherit the earth. Right? So all that judgment takes place so that uh, heaven is what heaven is. All that judgment takes place so Amen. that we have heaven to be what it is. And it's interesting because even with Adam and Eve, they were saved through judgment. Once they had sinned, it wasn't safe for them to stay in a holy place. Right? Uh, so they were cast out because the concern was they would uh, eat of the tree. So their judgment was also part of their protection. And things reverse course because now we're allowed back into uh, the permanent Eden through judgment that purifies us. As creatures who are new in Christ, our newness of life is because our old self has been judged. And that's what brings about our salvation. Buried in death with Christ and risen to newness Amen. of life with his resurrection. So there are some aspects I want to grab in what he said there. In his second coming, Jesus' second coming, he is going to bring judgment on the reprobate, those that have, they, they break the law and have nothing in their stead, the gospel, because they did not want the gospel. So they will be judged according to their own lawlessness, and then they will be removed. What's being removed is judgment brings the removing of sin, which is what we are saved from. Never again will the presence of sin be in our lives. We will step into eternity never to experience or have the influence or temptation of sin again. That's, that's the, what's that? Praise God. So, yeah, come, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I mean, you, you, what a beautiful thing that we will betray our Savior no more through our sin. In some sense, we betray him every time we sin. 
and yet he loves us and he, he, he promises to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But uh, that's the beginnings of the doctrine. See, the doctrines of eternity start, it's, it's, I shouldn't say start, it's helpful to look at the last judgment to understand what eternity is going to look like because we can see it thematically and bring it forward into eternity. So with that, oddly enough, it is the last judgment that aids us in better comprehending the doctrine of eternity. So we're going to go to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, and we're going to look at the three paragraphs that make up chapter 32 of the last judgment. We're going to walk through them. I'm going to ask you guys to, uh, I'm going to read just for, for uh, make sure that we, um, I'm giving a little greater um, guiding here, instruction. I'm going to read the paragraphs. I'll pause at the end of where it ends in a, in a number, and then each person will read the, uh, one of the scriptures that is associated with that number. So you can see under the number one, under paragraph one, at the very bottom it says Acts 17.31, and then John 5.22 and 27 are both where they draw this truth from out of the Bible. The 1689 goes to the Bible to anchor its doctrine. So that's what we're seeing. So here, of the doctrine of the last judgment, let's take a look at it. says this in paragraph 1. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. Okay, let's have the first person read 17, Acts 17, 31. Got it. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, and John 5, 22 and 27. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Okay, we've got a day that's been appointed by God, and, that, and the authority that is going to be the judge, the one that's going to play the role of judge, is the second person of the Trinity that's going to be extremely important in understanding what that looks like for Christians, if Jesus is the judge. Okay, so let's continue on. Uh, it says after that, after, um, in the paragraph itself, after the uh, number one, it says, To whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged. Oh, that's interesting. So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 3 and Jude 6 to see what the Bible has to say about angels being judged in addition to man. So uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Mm -hmm. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Okay. And these angels, are they, we got, begs the question, good or bad angels? Let's get to Jude 6. I have that, Jude, Jude 6. And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we see those apostate angels will be judged along with mankind. Okay, let's continue on here in the paragraph. But likewise, all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So now let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5, no, no, 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay. And then Ecclesiastes 12.14 For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay. Matthew twelve thirty six. I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. Okay, yeah, even the smallest of of sins, those that are careless words uttered will be judged. Romans 14, 10, and 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Okay, and then lastly, Matthew uh, 25, 32 through 46. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats to, on the left. Then the king will say to those at his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the internal fire prepared for you, the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. Okay. So I'm going to pose a question, and then I'm going to come back to Matthew 25, 32 to 46. And see if we can't, if this can't help us shape and see what we believe here. And the reason I'm asking these questions is because Christians have struggled over whether or not at the Bema seat, at the seat of judgment, are we being judged for bad works or good works? Which is it? And Christians have fallen on either side of this, and it's been a challenge. I think Matthew 25, 32 to 46 is most helpful in the, and kind of laying that out, but I want to ask a question. I want to look at Jesus' role in our lives to see if that can give us more of an understanding before I start to give you some things to consider. 
How does savingly knowing the judge, capital J, we know it's Jesus Christ. We just read that Jesus, all authority has been given to Jesus. He will be the one judging. How does, knowing, how does savingly knowing the judge, so you, we know him, at, we savingly know him. He's the one who saved us. Who is also the great high priest. And in his role as a great high priest, he continuously makes intercession for you and me to God the Father now in this world. That's one of his roles that the Bible talks about. So he is interceding on our behalf when we are sinning. How does that influence your understanding of the final judgment? In other words, do you believe Christians should view this event in terror, the event of judgment, in terror or in celebration? And I want you to think what happened in Matthew. First, he separates the sheep from the goats. Then he uses the sheep's works that they don't even realize. They go, when did we do that? And he he uses that as a basis for them being in this place. They have works that evidence their belief and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Then he turns to those that are part of the, the goats, that are the, the, the reprobates, the damned, and he shows them that they didn't do any of those, which further evidence their place. So is this time that we, this time of judgment, something that is, something that is, we look forward to in terror? Or is it something that we look forward to in celebration? It looks like Gary's got a hand going. I didn't know if that was that Pentecostal roots going on there or if that was actually a hand up. I'm uh, quite interested in this topic right now. So uh, is there something in between that? In between terror and celebration? Like all or? All right, then rather than doing it that way, by way of emotion, which do you believe? Do you believe that the, the uh, saints are being, will be judged for any sinful deeds we've done in our lives after becoming saints? No. No. Okay. No. So then it's just a matter of how you view it. And I'm using the two extremes. I understand. Terror and, and, and celebration. So it looks like your son's dying to jump in and help you out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm celebrating. Okay. <laughs> Uh, My position is I think both in this current life are appropriate because we're not perfectly sanctified. We have a flesh that can still rebel against God, and so we still need the impact of judgment to shake us out of sinful living. But then with the assurance that we have been saved, and so uh, we are still justified. So I think both are appropriate in this current life. So can I see if I've got this? I'm going to do a brief back. What I heard you say, and I'm going to summarize using my words instead of yours, is that this is meant to be a warning to Christians against sinning in this life and yet a celebration in reality as it relates to, but when I get to the Bema Seat, when I get before my God as the judge, he is going to make note of the evidences of my faith. He will only bring to bear or point out the good deeds in my life. 
Uh, correct, because some people will bear fruit, you know, tenfold, twentyfold, hundredfold, but they all enter the pleasure of God the Father. So. Okay. So I just want to hear yes. that at the Bema seat, you definitely see that God is not judging Stephen Moss for bad deeds. Okay. Rob Roy? There's absolutely um, zero terror. Now, because we're fallen, we experience it, but Jesus said, fear not. That's his number one command. And the design that somehow terror would um, help us in this life is a, a reasonable conclusion, but it's not accurate. In First Timothy, it says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The gospel means what? Good news. Celebration. Okay, our sins are paid for. It is the good news. And it's because of that, not the terror of the Lord, but because God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we do sin, when we do fall, it's not the terror of the Lord, but the love of the Lord that, you know, ultimately some people want to be in heaven because they don't want to be in hell because, because of the terror of the Lord. Right. But the true Christian wants to be in, in heaven, not because of the terror of the Lord, but the love of the Lord who has removed the terror permanently. It's, it's a key point to understand what that motivation is. And so we persuade men. So there is the evangelistic aspect that there is good news. And so we fear not men, but we fear for men. We want them to have the good news. We, we know the terror of the Lord to the, toward those who are unbelievers. And so we persuade men. And the reason we persuade men is because we're already persuaded that there is no terror for us. And we want to share the good news. And I think a number of the Psalms bear this out, including Psalm 130, where we're waiting like a watchman for the morning, eagerly waiting for the celebration of an event that's guaranteed. It's good. And that's why I nuance, and that's why I think... Uh... Um, Stephen said, well, can it be a little bit of both? And, and he didn't, he, I get the feeling you weren't comfortable with the word terror. And that's why I nuanced it to warning. Because you will read at least three times in Hebrews, you'll come across things that, that make it sound like, is that doctrine or is that, what is going on there? And what you see the writer of Hebrews doing is giving warning to Christians and saying, as if you could do all this sin and be a Christian over here. And so he is using something that if doctrinally it would sound like, well, that almost sounds like works. But you realize it's in warning form, like, get a grip, Christian. You can't live like the rest of the world. That's what's going on. So I, I, I appreciate the nuancing there. Okay, somebody else. Pete, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to comment, just supplementing what, uh, what you and Rob Roy and Stephen are saying. So in that section in Matthew 25 about the final judgment, uh, you know, the, the right for the sheep and the left for the goats. Just the, uh, the idea of for, for his children that it is an inheritance. He says, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then conversely in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so there's preparation on both counts and um, 
obviously we understand the concept of inheritance. You didn't do it. Mm. It's being mm. an inheritance is something that's gained on somebody else's, you know, merit. They earned it and they're giving it to you and it's been prepared for you as an inheritance. And uh, the obviously the reprobate will also has preparations uh, for them as well. So just just Good. supplemental to what you're saying. I will tell you that this doctrine, first I want to give you a little bit of insight and then I want to give you the, the as it relates to paragraph one, the eternity perspective. Um, the doctrine of whether or not Christians have their bad deeds, their sinful deeds, dealt with at the Bema seat. The, the Bema seat is the judgment seat of God on the last day. It's something that, as a young man, new to the faith and still very much influenced by my works-based theology, it sounded very logical that we would be still judged based on bad and good deeds. Like, like there was still this balance going on. Um, like, like somehow we, anyway. What I have, and Pastor Pete and I have gone back and forth in this, and our influences on, on our own understandings and whatnot, on this doctrine of last judgment, what, what happens at it. And if you hold, like I did as a young Christian, that I will, there will be tears before the Bema seat, because uh, it's the, some, there's a book out there, The Last Tears, and it's the tears of all that we fail to do. A, you miss Matthew 25. And B, you have an understanding of the doctrine of grace at its core as a wrong motivator for your good. We do good. We are motivated to do good because of what Christ has done that we don't deserve. We don't do good because we fear what might be bad at the judgment seat. We have to have this overhaul of grace, of this understanding of grace, that says at the Bema seat, we receive the rewards for God, which he has done. He's the one who wills and works in us, so he gets all the credit. We stand in humility, just even further in awe that you're only bringing up my, what I did like they did. Where did we do this, God? They didn't even realize that they were doing it, the sheep. And he's going, oh, yeah, I, what about that? And what about that? And, what, and you're going, really, I could show you a lot of bad. No, he's only pointing out the evidences, the good that, that bear witness to the fact that their faith is true. God has done the work in them, and they have responded. Even their response is God's doing and, con and their continuation of their response. So I just want to lift up off your shoulders if you got that theology like I did from a liberal churches early on and even a liberal institution uh, uh, um, where I got my first degree as far as the, the uh, undergraduate degree in Christian studies, I think the title of it was. It, it, all it did is put weight on my shoulders. It was like, oh, see, we Christians need to see that the judgment day is something we look forward to and work out of, if you're wondering, oh, this day I don't want to sin, which is true, you don't want to sin. And you're focused on, oh, don't, oh, I don't want to sin. Save me from the sin. And, and that's good in a sense. You kind of have a wrong angle. You got the tiger by the tail. God, look what you have done to me. I am so thankful. I want to honor you rather than spend the day focusing on not sinning against you. What does honor look like? Does that make sense? We, we're coming from a right heart. We're coming from a thankful heart. The other way around, we're focusing on a heart that's evil and which is 
true, but that's not one, that's not, shouldn't be the motivator. The motivator is what Christ has done. So let's continue on. Paragraph number two says this, which, by the way, oh, I wanted to say something about eternity. We are going into the presence of our Lord, who is the judge, who's the one that, that took the sacrifice of his life upon himself and stands and says, I mean, I, 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 just, I think back to my police days. The judge is ready to sentence. And the judge is the one that paid the price. How is the judge going to look at you and go, yeah, you're not covered by the, my blood. He's the one that insured it. He's the one who gave you the faith to believe it. This is, this is, you are running into a courtroom where you have already been deemed saved, made righteous by the work of Christ. It's a courtroom you can't wait to get in. It's not one you fear. There's no unknown outcome. He's the one doing it. And then, furthermore, we see that he's the one still, although he is ruling and reigning, he is still, according to the word of God, interceding on our behalf to the God the Father. Wow. I can't wait to be able to, to embrace the second person of the Trinity. Those are the things that should, should motivate us. That's what we have to look forward to. That's why we don't fear stepping from death into the presence of God. Okay, let's, get, let's look at paragraph two. The, uh, let me read the first up to the first um, moment there. Goodness gracious, is it 939? You got me feeling like, I shouldn't say you got me. I was, I, this doctrine impacts me more, maybe more than you. Maybe it's because I found freedom in finally understanding this. I hope you get it. Let me, let me just read this then. I'll let you look at the scriptures. Paragraph number two, the end of God's appointing this day. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate, those who are lawbreakers, who are wicked and disobedient, for then shall the righteousness, excuse me, the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy. Think about that, the fullness. We only understand, as I was telling you and giving you these pictures, your hearts were starting to fill with the joy of what to expect. You get the fullness realized at that time. Fullness of joy that God would give us. Fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards. Didn't say punishment. In the presence of the Lord, but the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's what Rob Roy was talking about. Knowing the ugliness of that should also motivate us to teach, to share the lost. You're going you're gonna to beat me up publicly when I tell you about God, uh, the gospel. There's a chance that as I'm sitting next to you on this plane or I'm talking to you in this line waiting for the cashier to ring us both up, you're going to sit there and say, this guy's a nut. Stay away from me. And everybody's going to look at you and go, what is this guy doing? I love you enough to tell you this is where you're, at least be motivated to tell you about the good news because I know where you're going if you don't have it. And I know the, the torment that the Bible describes of it. And then finally, the last paragraph we'll look at as you flip the paper over. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin, the all men is um, all 
those that are lost. That's the allness. There's a specificity of the all. And for the greater consolation, here's the other side of the all, the other people. And for the, other greater, and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, it, it consoles them to know that there is a God who is just. Yes, you live in a sin-cursed world where there is much wickedness and you feel the weight of injustice. But there is a God that one day will bring recompense on all those who have ushered in those injustices. So we will have the day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know, they know not at, all, at what hour the Lord will come and may be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. If you hear that last, you might go, Whoa! This is saying that they're going to get judged Wait a second. We're the, we're the ones that still might get judged. We, gotta, we don't know the day. We gotta, uh, let, me, just, let me read to you this last paragraph. Though we will not know punishment at the last judgment, we do not want to be found in a state of faithlessness, ingratitude, or shame. Let us, with obedient and joyful hearts, seek to honor our Lord upon his return and be found worthy to victoriously declare, come, Lord Jesus, come. I don't want to be in the middle of sin if the Lord were to come in the, in, in, for his second coming. That's what it's dealing with. Let us not be in a place where we brought shame on the name of God or our own actions that would bring shame to his name. Let's go ahead and, and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Father, I pray that those that may have been confused by the the doctrines of the world that, that are performance-based, I pray that there's, their souls were lifted this day. I pray that they have a right understanding of the Bema Seat. I pray that you use it to motivate us to a place of gratitude, of sincerity, of authentic desire to honor you. Let that be which drives us each and every day unto holiness, set-apartness, that we might be used by you to demonstrate that there is a difference between the light and the darkness. And, and please go before us in our everyday, our everyday interactions with people and start to draw the sinner unto Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.